0: Good evening, thank you for gathering here with us um, on uh, this special service uh, where we um, take some time um, to remember what our Savior did for us and to prepare our hearts for Easter morning. We'll be in the book of Hebrews 6 and we'll be there uh, in the first half here tonight for Good Friday and then we will look at the second half on Easter morning. So tonight as we start, I'll remind you just where we've been. Last Sunday, we looked at the end of Hebrews 5, and we saw the author paused from teaching about the priestly order of Melchizedek to address a matter in the church. He tells the church that some are struggling to understand the depths of this concept because they have become apathetic in their pursuit of spiritual growth. In our text today, he urges them not to take this challenge lightly because apathy toward God can be a symptom of a far more fatal condition And this begins in the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 6 when it says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. As a gospel people, we need to have the gospel take hold of us deeply and tightly. Rightly understood, the basic truths of our faith should launch us out into a journey toward deeper communion with God. Here in this text, when he talks about, therefore, let us leave the elementary, of doc- the elementary doctrines of Christ, He is not minimizing the foundational doctrines of who Jesus is, but he is saying that the truths, the basic truths of the gospel should cause us to leave, or perhaps a better term might be launch out into the deeper waters of understanding. In this way, imagine the gospel as the fuel that launches the ship. If it is effective in igniting our regeneration, rescuing us essentially, then it causes movement. And like fuel, we never cease to need it as we travel onward, as we run the race to which we have been called. Thus, the author's challenge is not to move past the gospel, but that the gospel, the good news that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death, so there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy in him and through him. The truth of the gospel is bearing fruit and growing and will continue to move us onward towards spiritual maturity. The opposite of this, here in this text, is described as laying a foundation again. If we have been regenerated, if we have been made new through the truth of the gospel, then the foundational truths of the redemption to which we hold, one of which we celebrate tonight, have opened our eyes to the glory of God and who he is. This is salvation. This means we don't need to be saved again on the cross. It was finished once and for all. And the author of Hebrews asserts that instead of allowing the gospel to grow and to stretch them, moving them forward on their journey with Christ, some in the body are trying to lay a new foundation. And they're doing this through returning to their old religious habits, including he lists four sets of things. He says they're relying on dead works. These people here in the church that is being spoken to through the book of Hebrews, they had a religious history, and they were prone to run back to that, the legalism to which they knew. Judaism places a high value on works, as do basically every religion. The gospel, however, requires that one accept a foundation which they did not and cannot build. He tells them that some are trying to lay a foundation again through the washing and laying on of hands. Again, ceremonial washings and laying on of hands were critical components of Judaism. And these religious rituals provided momentary comfort, but ultimately they were hollow and empty apart from Christ. These rituals were not a means for salvation, but beneficial only to the extent in which they reflected the salvation provided through Jesus. And perhaps on an Easter weekend, where we have all kinds of traditions and things we like to do, it's important to be reminded that the Easter eggs and the bunnies and even Sunday morning is void if it is not ultimately pointing our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. He mentions the resurrection and eternal judgment. This one seems a little peculiar. To clarify, the writer is not referencing the the resurrection that we're gonna celebrate on Sunday. And in a way, that's the whole problem that he's pointing out. He's referencing the never-ending Jewish debates on the resurrection and eternal judgment that were surely part of their previous experience. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had endless debates about resurrection and eternal judgment. Essentially, the Pharisees were more conservative in their view of the scriptures that they had, and they believed there would be a resurrection of God's people. The Sadducees absolutely did not believe this, and there was intense debate about it. Both Paul and Christ in scripture are confronted by the Sadducees on this point. These people are finding their identity through religious infighting that was a part of their previous life. And if you haven't been on Twitter lately, that's still a thing that people do. And this fight is ridiculous in light of all Christ had done. And that's the, the, the point the author's trying to make. Resurrection's not a debate anymore by the time Hebrews is written. Jesus has already proved that. Why are they still clinging to that? Ultimately, in each of these things, The church is clinging to their religious past and trying to build foundations once again. But God desires them to move onward, to be launched forward by the truth of the gospel and to grow in his likeness. And the author seems to believe that they will if God permits. And that's what verse three says. And this we will do if God permits. As the author of Hebrews said in chapter five, we are prone to becoming dull of hearing, meaning the ultimate enemy of enthusiasm is time. And as time goes on, we become apathetic to hear the truth of what God has said. And as a result, it becomes easier to rebuild religious foundations than to grow our roots deeper and deeper into the rich gospel soil that we have been called to. This is because building foundations, that is religious ritual, moral righteousness that we believe we can earn on our own accord, dead works, as it's called here in Hebrews, is something we can do on our own, we can tangibly, tangibly take hold of. You don't have to be a Christian to identify as one. However, the deepening of our roots into the soil of the gospel is something that we cannot do on our own. This can only happen if God permits, for He alone brings the rain. We pray, we work in expectation, and our gracious Lord provides. The author wants us to shake off the dullness by reminding us of the awesome, sovereign majesty of God. We will grow in Him if He permits. Every aspect of our life and our growth is dependent on His work In us through Jesus the most gracious thing our Lord can do is take away from you whatever he must so that you might depend on his strength and stop trying to build foundations on your own and this is many times what suffering is is the Lord in his grace stopping us from building foundations on our own and reminding us of the means by which we have been given strength, and that is Jesus Christ. Some, however, are permitted to do just that, to build their own foundations, to go their own way, and to seek that which they ultimately desire. And this is what's described in verses 4 through 6, where these sombering words are written. The author warns us here that some will see the truth. They will feel the radiance of God's grace and they will choose to reject it. This person is described as having been enlightened. This means they have heard the gospel and they've even responded to it in a positive way. Perhaps they've been baptized, but they have failed to believe it. They have failed to put their hope in it. It has failed to regenerate them. They're described as having tasted the heavenly gifts. This person has experienced the gifts of God. They've experienced fellowship amongst God's people. Christians have shown them love and mercy. And perhaps the metaphor of taste indicates that they have actually gathered around the communion table with believers. Yet they have not known the giver of the gifts in a personal way as their savior. This passage says they have shared in the Holy Spirit. And this is a peculiar one, but what this isn't saying is that the Holy Spirit dwelled in them. For the one in whom the Spirit dwells is secure forever. We know that to be true based on Scripture. However, a man can experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit by being in the midst of those in whom the Spirit does dwell. And in this way, they share in the Holy Spirit, but they do not depend on him. We see this in the story of Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, a man who seems to have sought after, uh, even sought to be discipled by the apostles, but ultimately we see that his heart is not as it seems in that chapter. Then these are described as those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Like the crowds who gathered around Christ to hear his teaching and then ultimately were the same ones who chanted crucify him. These are the ones who have understood the beauty of the gospel in a very basic way, and they delighted in the idea of it until it came time for it to cost them their lives. In in that time, the fruit of their life reveals that they have never believed the gospel in a saving way. They have never placed their hope fully in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that took place on Good Friday. This is ultimately exposed when they inevitably walk away from him. The race we are on is one we are physically incapable of finishing by our own might because this race requires a redeemed heart. One that will be proven true in the midst of great suffering and trial as this race will not be easy. It was never promised to be easy and the very fact that we come here tonight to remember a bloody cross should make that clear that we often are prone to forget. This heart can only be bestowed on one through the one who ran the race perfectly to the very end and end that culminated on that bloody cross. For those who are his He promises that he will carry you to the finish line. Broken and bleeding? Absolutely. But on the other side of the finish line, we will be made new once and for all. Sadness will be no more and all will be as it was supposed to be in the beginning. Scripture is warning us here on this Good Friday warning. However, that some will begin this race, but they will refuse the help that is offered them by Christ, choosing to rely on their own strength. This person will grow weary and they will stop running toward God. They will inevitably take an easier path. And when one experiences the goodness of God, and they choose to reject him in this way, this person takes part in the events of Good Friday once again, only for this person There is no good that comes before that. This is not Good Friday for them in this day because Easter is not for the one who has rejected Jesus. The author is saying that this man who celebrates the risen Christ amongst the body but then turns away from him is nailing him right back to the cross from which he stepped down. This is because Jesus died to make us pure and holy. Our sin has been exchanged for his righteousness. When he allows one to see and experience this purity and this holiness and to be in the midst of it, and one is allowed to come around the table and eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, and after this, they reject all that the cross has purchased, they are aligning themselves with the ones who put him there to begin with. And this person like Judas, looks to the world, looks to his flesh, looks to all that his hands have made and says, this is greater than Christ. The promises of Satan are greater and of more value than the promise of God. And in making this declaration, they choose to stay and make their home amongst the crowd, chanting, crucify him. For us, the events of Good Friday are a crime worthy of eternal consequence. And if Christ remains in the grave, this would surely be our fate. For those who deny Christ, he might as well still be in there. For they have rejected the righteousness he purchased on that dark night. And verses seven and eight describe this distinction this way. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end, it is to be burned. Does the land that is my life bear fruit? The Christian must regularly be asking this question. If my crops are pretty sad right now, The author of Hebrews is writing to tell you that you do not need religious legalism. You don't need to try to build foundations, again. And you need not despair. What you need is to rest in the finished work of Christ and to walk with him and to allow him to guide you and carry you forward, to acknowledge him as king of kings and lay all things down at his feet. Through his word, he promises to provide comfort and instruction. And he promises to teach you, to discern what is good and evil through the very gospel truths by which you were rescued. And this gospel reign, verses 7 and 8 tell us, will produce a crop in you that is beneficial for Christ's church. He will use you. He will use you in a way that is beyond what you can imagine through what he chooses to do in you as he grows you in the truth of the gospel. He desires to work in you, but you must be willing to repent in the moments when you are dull of hearing because the journey of spiritual growth is not easy, but it is eternally worth it because of the price that was paid on that cursed tree. If you are a Christian this morning, you need to soak in that reign of God's word. You need to work those fields of your heart and remove all of the thorns and thistles, identifying them, allowing them to be identified, and rooting them out to the glory of God. And you need to put your hand to the plow, expecting an abundant harvest, because it's been promised. This is Christian maturity. But for the fields that bear no fruit, only thorns and thistles. That is a place of death and judgment that this verse tells us is a cursed land. Only the Lord can provide the rain needed to sprout life from dry ground. Call on the Lord. Pray for the rain. And He tells you He will provide. As we close this morning, I want to offer you a warning and a promise. Christian, this night is only good if the check that was written on Friday night cleared on Sunday morning. And if your salvation was purchased through that resurrection, it means your life should reflect a resurrection. Continual death to self, continual growth in Christ. If Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, if you have tasted and experienced his grace, but you refuse it, even in a way that might look super religious, then there is nothing good about this night for you. For you will answer for the greatest crime creation has ever known. R.C. Sproul, when asked, why do bad things happen to good people? would often respond, that only happened one time. And apart from Christ, that one time, the debt of that one crime belongs to you. And apart from Christ, you will have to pay that debt by yourself. And your account is deficient beyond what you could possibly understand. My hope this evening is to posture your heart to feel the weight of the cross. It is only in understanding the weight of our offense that the one who has been rescued can understand how big the cross must be in light of God showing mercy to such offenders. Growing in the gospel is both growing in my awareness of Christ's love for me while also acknowledging the shadow of death which is the truth of my offense that, was, that my de- very dependence upon him is a result of. Only through feeling the weight of Friday's darkness can we feel the glory of the light that bursts forth on Sunday morning. That's the whole point of this evening. That's why things are set up the way they are. If you're a visitor here, we're not an emo church. It'll feel very different in here Sunday morning. But tonight, I just want you to sit for a minute and feel the darkness of Good Friday. And to that end, however, I want to leave you with verse 9 as we enter into a time of prayer. Because what I've shared with you, the feeling of today, is not the end of the story. For in verse 9, we see a transition beginning in Hebrews 6. And he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Lord, thank You. Thank You for this night that we could come together. We could remember the cost of our redemption. Surely, You have borne our griefs, yet You did so without sin. Lord, you took our sin to the cross, the cross that rightly belonged to us, the cross upon which we should have hung, and you hung in our place. You bore the fullness of all of our doubts, our insecurities, our lies, our backbiting, our hatred toward a brother. You took all of that upon your shoulders, and you drank that cup of wrath down to the dregs. And this evening we come and we remember and we thank you. And as much as we thank you for the glorious truth of what you did on the cross, we thank you all the more for Sunday that is coming. Our small sin surely would crush us did crush us apart from you. We had no hope aside from you. Yet you bore all of that to the fullest. And because of that, we look forward to a celebration on Sunday and then a greater celebration in the day when you come and you make all things new. Lord, thank you for this evening. Please prepare our hearts for Easter morning Um, Don't allow us just to take part in ritual this weekend without sitting with you, without doing a work in us, without preparing our fields for the words that you have to give us and remind us of over these, these special days. Lord, we love you. I thank you for these people. Ask your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.